This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. Indeed. Well, welcome to the Decentralized Trials Club here on Clubhouse or nowadays also being available to you on your favorite podcast. We gather here every week live on Fridays, 12 to 1 Eastern time to discuss a range of topics around clinical trials and often in particular around decentralized clinical trials covering issues and considerations from patient factors to technical and data interoperability to regulatory and policy to culture and change. Uh, these topics come from you, the folks in the community, the folks in this audience. And so if you have a topic that you'd love to see us cover in the weeks ahead, drop a line to myself, to Jane Miles, to Amir Kalali, and we will be delighted to add that and hopefully add your voice as a co-host, just as we're having the pleasure of being joined today by Jen Horan-Jeff and Alicia Staley. Today's topic is in recognition and celebration of Rare Disease Day earlier this week. And for that recognition, I'm looking forward to this conversation that leans in on patient input, patient advisory boards and clinical trials. To be honest, Alicia, some of the reason why this topic came to mind this week was uh, a post I saw attached to you on LinkedIn. Maybe it was around Rare Disease Day, and I know you've been driving some great things around uh, standing up a continuous advisory board at Medidata. Um, but before we jump in, and I let Alicia and Jen have some mic time and introduce themselves, Jane, what are your thoughts on this week's topic? This is a topic that's been on my mind for more than a decade, and um, yeah, I'm old. But what was really fascinating to me is way back in those days, people believed we couldn't ask patients, and there are still some maybe taboo thoughts about it, which I hope we get to myth bust today. So I'm super excited to hear from people who are making this happen regularly and what they've learned in the process. Jane, you could be in this industry for more than a decade and you are still your youthful, inquisitive self. And by the way, that is such a great setup. And it actually takes me back even to this topic around decentralized trials. When, when I was designing that remote trial at Pfizer, uh, we brought uh, folks like Dave DeBroncart, ePatient Dave, into Pfizer to spend a day and 
spend a little time with the team and help to open their eyes to what are e-patients, this being back in 97, 98, what's an e-patient and what does that mean for clinical trials? And Jane, I remember while we had Dave in the building, I thought this is such a treat. This is the illustrious, famous Dave DeBroncard. Clearly there are other people that will want to spend time and learn from him. And way back then I would bring that up as an opportunity with people and they would say to me, why would I talk to him? Or what do you want me to tell him or explain to him? And the world has changed so much in the time since 98, but I agree there are still definitely some pockets that maybe are still living like it's uh, the late 90s. Maybe for some things like music, that might be a good thing, but for patient insights, I think uh, it's time for hopefully us all to, to leapfrog ahead a couple of decades. Alicia Staley, it is such a pleasure to have you back with us here. If somebody out there doesn't know you, can you please introduce yourself? Let the folks that are joining us know a little bit about you and a little bit about what you do by day. All right, let's see, where should I start? Um, uh, well, I'll start, I guess, from the beginning in the 90s, no. Um, I, I, I guess, full story, my, I am a three-time cancer survivor was diagnosed uh, with cancer for the very first time when I was a sophomore at Syracuse University studying aerospace engineering. Uh, wanted to be an astronaut, um, but back in the early 90s when you were studying to be an astronaut, they weren't really blasting any cancer survivors into space back then. So I quickly realized that um, I was gonna have to change my career, stayed in mechanical engineering um, got through my cancer diagnosis in about three and a half years. They basically threw everything at me, including the kitchen sink, trying to get me uh, through Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, you know, get me through that disease state. And graduated from school and thought, like, that that's part of, you know, that's in my history. I'm not going to have to ever think about this again. Um, and did pretty well for about, I'd say, the first uh, 10 years. Um, and in 2004, uh, I was diagnosed with breast cancer as a direct result of all the treatment that I had for the Hodgkins. And then um, it came back in 2008. And at that point, um, I realized I was probably in for a pretty big career shift because I was not happy with my experience as a patient and a participant in sort of the healthcare ecosystem. Um, and just realized uh, we needed to change some things. So I think my, my long-standing line is you can't put an engineer in a hospital waiting room and not expect them to basically repaint the whole place and redesign the workflow and uh, figure out uh, just a much more efficient process for the patient to interact with, um, with, with a cancer center, for example. So my first uh, step into advisory boards was really at the hospital where I was treated. Uh, when I, I, I think finally I had complained enough uh, about inefficiencies and just a lack of empathy when it came to the patient experience that they said, uh, let's, let's put up or shut up and we're gonna put you on the patient family advisory board to see what you can do. And I think um, I'm really a big fan of the concept of the advisory board as a mechanism for sharing insights and uh, building relationships um, in very collaborative ways with, with stakeholders that might not necessarily have the opportunity to do so. 
So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> you know, Alicia is, um, as usual, she'll undersell herself here. So I'm going to, I'm going to fill in some gaps as your spokesperson. Well, I am a Sabres fan. Even... Is that what I left out? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to focus on that one. Um, especially, you know, living in, in Boston when the Bruins are way at the top of the NHL right now to, to, to suffer with Buffalo is a, is a, it's a sign of commitment, but your commitment also that, you know, you, you founded the the hashtag breast cancer social media. You created a community on Twitter in the earliest days that has impacted the lives of so many. And uh, we're the recipient last year of the Stovall Award from the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, which is absolutely awesome. And I believe even involved a celebrity sighting at the award reception. That is correct. Um, apparently Ellen DeGeneres was actually hanging out in the same hotel where we had our awards dinner. So uh, I missed out on meeting her, but apparently everybody else at my table uh, got to do some selfies with her. So it was, uh, I, I like to lead an interesting life no matter what. So Look, even when I was at <laughs> Pfizer, Alicia, when, before she jumped into MediData was the type of background and, you know, generous with, with Mindshare that we were able to pull in for different sessions to mm -hmm. tap her brain as both a, a survivor in, in breast cancer and, and, and bringing that engineering mindset into this space. So uh, it's great to have you here on today's Thank topic. You. And likewise, another fabulous mind out there, our friend Jen Horn-Jeff. Jen, it is always great to have your voice. Uh, there is somebody out there that does not know the fabulous Jen. Would you mind filling that gap for them and share a little bit about yourself and your work, Jen? Sure. It's always hard to follow up Alicia, but I will do my best. And maybe, you know, I'm inspired to slow down and maybe tell a little bit more of the story than I generally do. But I really, my earliest identification is as a patient because I was diagnosed with juvenile idiopathic arthritis when I was an infant. So I truly don't know life without being a patient. And from there, of course, got a cascade of other diagnoses, some more common, some rare, but all generally speaking within the autoimmune disease sort of subtype here. My body just has a way of attacking itself and just kind of got used to that. Thought I had a rhythm down with those kind of things. And then, oh gosh, about 15 years ago, I uh, was diagnosed with a type of brain tumor. And then 10 years ago, actually had surgery to remove it. And then they said, oops, we don't know what it is. Uh, but their best guess was that it was a, a rare type of, of brain tumor. And those things really just like informed my desire to kind of want to go into healthcare. But I originally thought, you know, as one of those sick kids do that I would become a physician. But as I got older, I became sort of disenchanted with the type of medicine that even my providers could practice just based on other systemic barriers that made it more challenging. And I thought, oh gosh, that doesn't look like so much fun. And so ultimately I decided to go into medicine, but more from the engineering side. So like Alicia kind of have that sort of framework as I approached the world. And I became a human factors engineer and a human centered designer. For those of you that aren't familiar with human factors, it's really how can we design the environment in the world to fit the person as opposed to designing things then go good luck and hope that it works and as somebody who grew up with arthritis trying to navigate the world with a physical limitation oftentimes i ran into things that 
did not work for myself and my peers. And so that's what kind of brought me into that space. And then I became an academic and was studying patient-centered outcomes, specifically in treatment guidelines and clinical trial outcome measures. And so what that means is, are we actually measuring the things that matter to patients or are we just guessing and just you know, prioritizing what matters most to sponsors, providers, regulators, et cetera. So through doing that kind of work also led me to doing advisory work through the FDA and reviewing sponsor applications there. And so then what I found myself doing is kind of working with colleagues that were fabulous people like yourself on the line here. But ultimately what I was noticing is that a lot of my colleagues were really guessing about these aspects of, of patient priorities. And because I'm really open about my conditions, people would then say, hey, Jen, you know, what's your perspective? And that was what signaled that they needed to talk to other people. And that was the genesis of starting Savvy Cooperative, of which I am the founder and CEO. And that is what I do spending my or spend my time doing now is helping companies and innovators connect directly with diverse patients and caregivers across all different diseases. We're disease agnostic so that they can talk directly with patients as opposed to guessing. And from the patient ad board sort of perspective, really it was kind of through this meandering path through the ecosystem that I started to do this kind of work, especially in sort of the academic and nonprofit space. Um, I helped stand up one of the, the first arthritis foundation, their patient leadership council at their national level. So that even from an advisory perspective to nonprofits. They were getting patient perspective there. We did it with a lot of sort of academic consortiums as well to make sure that patients were involved in, in research and as well as on publications. And then as I started savvy and doing more work in industry, that's now what we do is help people have both advisory boards as well as other touch points with patients. So that's and me. And so today we have one person who had a background in engineering and then entered a, a journey as a patient. And we have another person who started life with a journey as a patient and then moved into engineering. And so these are great convergent stories, but there's only one person joining us today who once wore a hospital gown on the stage at JP Morgan. And if folks don't can't picture that well, because this is an audio only platform, I'm going to fill the, the gap for you by dropping the link at the top of the screen so that you can get a better picture in your mind of what I'm talking about. Jen, why would somebody wear a hospital gown at JP Morgan? I think the first answer is that I don't embarrass easily. I'm trying. Uh, I'm trying. Really <laughs> I've, I've never dropped a picture I mean, at the uh, at the top link on uh, on Clubhouse before. You're the first. That is funny. Um, no, I mean, I was just trying to make a statement that at JP Morgan, for those of you that aren't familiar, it's an investor conference mostly where they're deciding where they're going to put their money. And I've been going to this meeting for years and always say, like, why are there not more patients represented here? And I'm always met with, oh, well, this is an investor conference. This isn't a place for them. But that's bananas to me. How are you going to actually know where to invest your money if you don't know what the patient priorities are? So where there's a bunch of investors, that means there's a bunch of people in suits and probably Patagonia vests. But I was trying to make a statement that those people do not represent the patient perspective. And so I wore a hospital gown to be a little bit more in discordance with the, the suits that we're walking around making decisions for people that they are not communities of. 
And now you've got me picturing what the hospital gown with a Patagonia vest convergence could look like. <laughs> um, Next year. Thank you so much. Jane, I know you have 101 questions. Uh, where would you like to begin today with the fabulous Alicia and Jen? Sure. I do have 101 questions, but I'm hoping that the audience has at least 101 questions too. So it's clear to me why you love this work and thank you for doing it. I'm really curious. And one of the reasons that I'm going to ask this question is from my prior life in the sponsor world, where there was a lot of assumption that a patients and just hear the words, don't judge me. Patients won't know what we're asking them. And second, it'll take too long to find patients. We don't have time for that. So forget the first comment, but how do you find patients? How long would a team, let's call it a protocol development team, need to build in for time to include patient voice? And maybe you have a whole different way to approach that. So there is no time um, added to the process. So let's just start there. I'll start. Um, so I, I'm going to say you can't answer the second part of that question without addressing the first part. So sorry, Jane, you're not, I can't let you off the hook on that one. Um, so there, there are inherent assumptions that still permeate this industry. And that's exactly one of them that patients don't, you know, why are we going to ask patients for their input? Because we, they're, they're not going to understand. And I think that that assumption has done this industry, um, a serious mis, misdeed for too long. And I think I, I'm not going to speak for Jen, but I, I, <laughs> I'm assuming that Jen and I, with the backgrounds that we have, um, are never going to settle until we can uh, smash the assumptions that permeate this industry about the patient perspective um, in a big way. Because how can you even begin to talk about uh, where should the patient perspective be resident when you still have those uh, misconceptions about the value of a patient perspective um, that, that are resident in the industry? So until we get rid of that, um, it's going to make it hard for, for sponsors to understand the need to move the patient voice to the very beginning of, of their processes. And maybe, um, Alicia, before you dive into how do we, you know, answer Jane's second question, I'll layer in <laughs> a, a, about this part of, yeah, we think about patients as, as lesser than or their perspectives, and obviously commentary on that. But furthermore, I think part of this is the whole point is we need to hear from people who have different levels of, let's call it health literacy, engagement, experience, because those are the people that we're trying to reach. So especially when people are trying to say like, oh, well, they couldn't understand. Okay, well, great. Like, this is an awesome opportunity for you to understand, like, what is the, the level of understanding they come in with? Because that is the general population. And it's one of the reasons why we even started Savvy is to make sure that we're not just talking to the same sort of like patient advocates like myself, like Alicia over and over again, but can actually have access to people who have never had these conversations before. So I see this as a valuable opportunity to talk to people who don't understand the way that, you know, people in the industry might. Exactly. And I think you said it perfectly that without that sort of level set, with, without the removal of the assumptions, um, it, it's just going to be too hard. 
<laughs> to have these conversations. So, you know, patient communities, patient advocates, um, you know, however you want to refer to the patient voice, I think is critical. And the sooner that sponsors and site and industry recognize that that perspective has to be addressed from, from day one, um, the easier it's going to be for the rest of the industry and processes to sort of be expedited in a way that I, I think we're not typically used to in this industry. So there, there's value in the, the patient perspective and why the patient voice should really be considered at the get-go when you're designing a trial, designing a business strategy, anything. Um, without, without understanding your true, the, the, the true consumer in healthcare, whether investors want to recognize it or not, are patients, um, you're, you're not going to have the efficiencies that you need in this industry. And talking about where to find patients won't make sense until we address that. So I don't know if you've got anything you want to add, Jane, Jen. Well, I want to just dive there for one sec. And you're, you're stating something, I'm going to make it even more overt. Back when I was having these conversations and people were asking, well, why would we and can we even and gosh, are you sure they know what we would ask them? We were probably still thinking about physicians as our primary customers. In, and I would say there has been a shift. It's not holistic, but now we do recognize that the end user of these treatments is the patient. It is a little complicated because of the healthcare system. But I think that what we have the opportunity to do is learn a little bit more from the tech industry about UI UX and really seeking end user input to design and execution plans which I think is what you're aiming for with your patient ad boards. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. <laughs> I think yes, that, you know, for a, a technology facing company or a company that builds technical solutions like metadata, absolutely. Um, that, that perspective has to include UI, UX, and a deep understanding of how a patient's going to engage with a technical solution. But I, the work that we're doing with the, the Patient Insights Board at Metadata goes a step beyond that, or goes several steps beyond that. It's, we're not just about building better technologies with patient perspective at the forefront of our, our software design and development life cycles, but we're also trying to educate the, the company and the industry that without these kinds of conversations throughout the entire continuum of the clinical trial journey, um, you can be, build the best technology in the world. It's never gonna be adopted and utilized or even embraced by patients if you don't understand the mindset of the patient throughout the entire continuum of, of the clinical research journey. Um, and, and that I think is a fundamental shift in the way that we're looking. It, it goes beyond just UI, UX design and development. It's what is the ecosystem that a patient has to uh, be that, that that a patient is resident in as part of their patient journey. Totally agree. And my bad on terminology, I was thinking about the concept of UI UX in a protocol design setting, not just a tech design 
setting. So that that's a radical shift in thinking for most of the sponsor companies I've worked within. I think it's coming. So agree. keep going. And that's what I think is, you know, Alicia, you were just sort of framing that to, to give sort of a to step back and give maybe a, a landscape uh, assessment of where people get patient insights and, and how we should think about this is especially in things like drug development. At Savvy, we work with companies to even talk to patients before they decide which molecule to go after because they want to be able to understand the, the patient experience. What is it that is making the need for a new drug even necessary? All of these kind of things of what are what are their priorities? So trying to design that from the get go. And then, of course, it can be things like getting feedback on protocol design. And is it feasible? Will patients actually enroll and then stay in said trial? It can be the informed consent documents. Are they understandable? Do people know what they're signing up for? The marketing materials that go out to to enroll in trials, all of these kind of things. But then also what we're kind of just talking about is it could be the technology and the apps that patients are used or the wearables. We do a lot of user testing around developing out these types of apps and, and processes that go along with, with trial protocols. So it can be any number of things, and you want to be able to get patient perspective in them. And that's why it matters to get diverse patient perspective, because if we want to enroll populations that are representative, then we need to make sure that they are involved in the design and development of, of the process itself. And so that's then the question coming to, okay, well, where do we even find patients from the get-go? And that's where, of course, I can tell you a little bit about Savvy's model. And that is one where we are not sort of locked into talking to the same people over and over again. Both myself and my co-founder, Ronnie Sharp, were both patient advocates in our own space, myself in arthritis and autoimmune disease, him in cystic fibrosis. And we were constantly the ones that were being asked to give our perspective. And that was the challenge or the, the problem was, you know, we know too much. <laughs> we know how the process goes. And there's a time and a place for those like higher level advocates to be, uh, you know, sort of liaisons, if you will. But we really wanted to make sure that others were included. And that's where people go, oh, gosh, well, how in the world could we even find them? And our model is one where our clients say, hey, we're looking to talk to people who meet X, Y, Z eligibility criteria and we say great and then ultimately we turn to our community of patients that we already know and we say here's who we're looking for find them and then they go into their closed communities be it a closed facebook group a faith-based organizations listserv their neighbor who was recently diagnosed and they share these opportunities in more of a trusted peer-to-peer sort of way, we kind of joke, it's like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon of like patient advocacy that somebody knows somebody that knows somebody. And particularly in rare disease, this is why we're so good at it is because it's a, a tight knit community that somehow you can get to, you know, the types of populations that you're looking for. An example, you know, that we share is, it was many years ago now, but Bayer came to us looking for an ultra rare disease. Yeah, we didn't have anybody with that ultra rare disease. They're like, we'd love to talk to like a dozen patients, but if we could talk to one, that would be a win. So one of our members reached out to somebody in that community, explained, hey, you know, I'm a patient and I do work with Savvy and they're looking to talk to people that have your condition. Would you in your community be interested? And they said, yeah. And we over-enrolled that project in less than two days. 
So that, you know, results may vary, but it just goes to show this doesn't have to be as hard as I think people make it out to be, but you have to work with organizations that have, you know, trusted connections into the space in order to garner that trust and make the enrollment process in these projects happen quickly. But I think that's what people just don't budget the time or the, the actual financial budget to make this kind of work happen. And so then they just say, oh gosh, well, maybe next time. So you do have to plan for it, but certainly it's not going to slow you down so much. And any any type of slowdown to do it is so worth it. I was talking to somebody the other day that was saying they were deploying a survey in their clinical trial. And I said, oh gosh, have you had any feedback on it? And they said, no, but like, we really just want to get it going or we're going to you know, lose time. I was like, oh, so you want to find out, you know, in a few years that you were collecting the wrong data? Like, that sounds like a terrible idea. We could get feedback on this in, you know, the next two weeks. So I think people just really need to start thinking about the the risk if they don't do it. The slowdown to speed up mantra is part of the way I live. But um, Jean, I just want to add one thing, if I may, that, that Jen basically laid out in a wonderful example there. When, when people come back to me and say, why, why I don't need the patient perspective now, I'll get it later. I'm like, either you're going to pay for it now or you're going to pay for it later. Like, there's no in-between. Like, either you can, you're going to have to, like, get the patient perspective up front, make the investment up front, because if not, two or three years down the road, like Jen said, you're going to find out that uh, an assumption you made is wrong or... <laughs> God forbid you get into like a post-marketing situation where you're now having to go back and do additional research and trialing because you missed a segment of the population that you didn't quote think you needed to have. So it's either, you know, bring those patients on like immediately and bring that perspective in sooner because if you don't, it's ultimately you're risking the potential for having it come back. Um, as an, as an unknown or missed assumption. So agreed hundred percent. And the myth we're busting here is that it will take a lot of time to find the patients to get the feedback because in both situations, Alicia and Jen have found ways to make those patient voices accessible in a timely manner. So what I'm hearing is, it's not as hard as you might have thought. I heard you, Jen, results will vary. But also, there are some solutions now that might help sponsors who thought it would add, I'm making this up, three months to their timeline in trial design. So plan for it, but don't think it'll take forever and it might save you time. That's what I'm hearing. Myth, myth number one busted, and it only took the first couple of minutes here. It's, it's a great topic in that... Just a couple of days ago, I was talking with a leader at a young biotech company who was saying that, boy, it seems all of this patient insight stuff makes sense, but it's good for the big pharma. How could I, at a young biotech, be able to incorporate this with time and cost into my process? But everything that I'm hearing so far says things scale. And that's a great signal for uh, for our audience and hopefully to bring out to their networks and share we're at the bottom of the hour. It's 12.30 here Eastern time. So a great reminder for us to welcome anyone that has just joined us here in the last few minutes. You've landed 
on the Decentralized Trials Club on Clubhouse, where we're broadcasting live. And then hopefully you're able to enjoy this as well on your favorite podcast channels. So if you're here on Clubhouse, follow the Decentralized Trials Club, click that name tag on the top left of your screen. From there, you'll access replays, see what's coming up in the weeks ahead. And of course, if you're listening on your favorite podcast, subscribe there. If you're here live, also scroll around the room, see who's here with you. Give a follow on LinkedIn, Twitter, not just to the fabulous people like Jen and Alicia who are sharing their voice now, but to the others in the room who clearly share your interest in today's topic and can be great people for your networks. Remember, the topics we bring forward here are yours. So if you have a topic you'd love to see us cover in the weeks ahead, reach out to myself, Jane, to Amir Kalali. Just let us know what it is you'd like to see us cover in the weeks ahead. I've been dropping a few links of interest into the chat or pinning things at the top. Um, We're going to open up the room now for your questions, experiences, and ideas. While you're getting ready to hit the hand-raising icon there on the bottom and join us here on stage, I'm going to do an extra little shout-out that I haven't really done in, in weeks past. I noticed that Savvy, there's a, a project manager role and maybe some other interesting open positions over there. I noticed at Medidata, the patient cloud team has some interesting open positions, including some summer intern positions for the right undergrad in your family. And so not only keep an eye on these great individuals to follow, but be sure to take a look around their websites in case for you or a colleague in your network, there's that right next step in their career journeys. Um, Jen, Alicia, how did I do there? That was pretty cool. Thank you. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Thanks for the, the amplification. <laughs> you know, there's so many great friends out there that are looking for that next step in their in their journey. Some of them may be joining us here today. So um, it's always fun to take a look and maybe I'll, I'll need to make a better practice, Jane, of doing that more consistently each week uh, if there are some great That's opportunities good, for folks. Really good prep item with our speakers. I'm going to be really selfish and take one more question just because this one burns. That is your prerogative, Um, Jane. (laughs) Okay. So we now know we can stand up these ad boards. I want to know, aside from the patients, obviously, who is not usually included in the ad board conversations who needs to be present? Like, who are we not inviting who would find really valuable insights from the conversations? Someone you want to aim that towards for starters, Jane? Um, How about you, Jen? Are you asking about like who's not included like internally at an organization? That's right. Mm -hmm. Oh gosh, well, you know, I might say that Craig and Jane, you may be even more positioned to to answer this. I, for us, the kind of work that we do runs across so many different types of departments. And so from my standpoint, it just depends on the project and the work that's being done. I mean, we do work in commercial, so it's going to look different than how we're working on the, the, the clean up side or these kind of things. So 
I'm not sure I know how to answer that like, per se. Like, so I'm thinking about trial design questions. That's always where my mind goes. Like as Alicia said, you're trying to figure out, is this design feasible? Does it ask questions that are relevant to patients? I'm very curious, maybe Alicia has a different way of answering this. Who do you think needs to be include, included from the sponsor organization to really drive impact with those insights we gather? I think it, uh, more involvement from executive leadership. Um, so I, th I think you've got your, your the, the teams that are actively working on um, trial design and you know participating in starting up these trials but I think more buy-in from you know executive senior leadership across the board with sponsors it just is a way to begin to sort of change the ethos around the concept of patient centricity and patient engagement and just really make these companies uh, better at putting the patient first when it comes to business drivers, goals, objectives. Um, it, it, you know, there's opportunities for subtle shifts in the way that sponsors look at executing on their, their business objectives that can certainly take into account a much more patient-focused uh, perspective, and I, I think that that's a, a missing piece if, if you're looking at it from the industry side. Yeah, I'm going to turn it to Craig too, and maybe I'll shift the question a little bit. In who actually did come to one of the ad boards that you held, who got more out of it than they expected? So that might be a flip, right? Like. So, you know, I, it's funny, like some of the ad boards that I've been a part of, um, it, it's interesting. Like I, I was always very cautious in my company job about using the word empathy. I was always afraid that if I told people part of the reason they were going to be there was for empathy, that people would almost look at me like, dumbfounded as if I'm suggesting they're psychotic. How are you implying that I lack empathy, right? Because I think we all like to believe we have empathy, but empathy with a capital E really means something different. And there really is a very deliberate definition around building empathy for people and better understanding, you know, all these attributes around their situation. There was one particular study where the, the teams actually spent quite a few cycles over a few weeks with a group of patients that had a very specific request to not include a long washout period before um, switching patients into a certain treatment assignment for, for their trial, um, believing that that washout period would make life just intolerable. And in the, in the end, the team was able to to make that request work. They made a substantial change to their protocol, which operationally ha had to have had a huge impact in terms of enrollment, retention, and avoiding a downstream protocol amendment. But from an empathy perspective, it was emotional. Like the 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 sense of of kind of camaraderie and and working together on both sides was really remarkable. And it's not something I would be able to necessarily sell to other teams in the organization. Come together because you're gonna feel really good at the end, but 
damn, did that really make a difference for people that from both the patient side who were in the room who were saying, I didn't really believe they were going to hear me or listen to me or react to what I said, but also from the study team perspective and really feeling like listening to these individuals who were sharing their time and perspective was able to make a real impact. Um, that's something I wouldn't have anticipated and I couldn't sell, but it's, it's such a, such a, a great consequence as well. Um, Jane, I don't know if that's where you were headed, but that's what jumped yeah, to my mind. Very much so. And I'll just, I'll take two seconds and say, I found in different settings, statisticians were deeply impacted by understanding the patient journey at a different level by being included in the conversation and it actually did change their thinking on how long the endpoint measurements had to be um, included in the trial and even whether or not we really needed all the assessments we had imagined so i'll just park it but thank you so much for letting me get more clear about my question Maybe I can add something, Jane, to just kind of maybe bring this full circle of the reason why we do this work to talk to patients is because they're more than just the quantitative data that they supply. And so by doing this kind of work, it's the qualitative that provides the contextual information that, that brings these stories to life. And so that's where you get those sort of empathetic evolutions that people are having, but it, it truly matters so that it goes beyond just, oh, a, a patient doesn't want to enroll in this trial. Well, why? Because that's what you have to understand in order to make any meaningful changes. So that's why we actually have to do this work and we can't just review medical records. We can't just do quantitative surveys. It's conversations that elucidate this kind of information. You nailed it. Well, thank you so much. And Rob, you've been very patient. So what do you want to add? Well, uh, uh, thanks, first of all, for you all putting this topic on the week when it's Rare Disease Day. So that's kudos to everybody. I'm Rob Wilson with VivoSense, and we help develop digital uh, endpoints in clinical trials from wearable sensing data and other uh, data sources. And we've been quite active in, in rare disease, in particular, uh, Rett syndrome and SMA, and I my question to the group is, um, uh, since there's a vast level of experience with the people here, and you've been at it for many many years, you know where where are we in the scale of adoption on a scale of one to ten, and what do you think is the major barrier? Um, and I think Jane, your your question about who needs to be in the room to hear this is is an excellent one. You know, I've, I've found in my uh, career with deploying novel digital solutions at the pharma level, there's a whole bunch of barriers there that could be technical, operational, regulatory, uh, science-driven questions. And so I think um, getting those, those voices in the room is important. But for something like rare disease, where there's just such an extreme burden on the patient, and let's not forget the caregivers in that equation, it seems like if ever there was a, a, a ear that could be used to hear the story, it would be in that format. And, you know, I, I have a feeling that in a lot of digital medicine adoption, it does boil down to money and cost and people at the sponsor level and, and uh, CRO level really investing the funds to learn some of these new technologies and hear the patient voice. But where are, I mean, we've had patient-focused drug development. We've been talking about patient centricity for as long as I can remember in digital health, but 
where are we on the, the, the scale of adoption? And do you have a view as to what is that, that single thing that all of us could do, anybody could do, that would help um, increase adoption and help better serve the patients and their caregivers? So, Jen, how yeah. do we drive more adoption here? I think in terms of where are we, to kind of reflect back, when, when buzzwords like patient centricity first hit the scene, it was just really a lot more talk about that than action. And so I think we've come a long way from there. We haven't talked about this yet, but this is my opportunity to also plug in that we used to not believe in paying patients for their insights, and now while, you know, is still sometimes it can be a struggle to get patients fairly compensated, I don't have the same sort of conversations that I did early days about, you know, oh gosh, if we pay them, then it's coercion or whatever. People are understanding more now that there's time and expertise that's invested. So we're, we're moving right along. But in terms of adoption, I think it's tough. I mean, even just as an example, I talk about, gosh, we, you know, we work with all the major pharma companies, but it might be one or two teams within each company, not wide scale. And that's part of the thing is that people just don't even know that there are resources out there to help make this more efficient and easier to do and easy to reach patients because it's tough when you think, gosh, I want to do the right thing, but I don't know where to start. I don't know where to turn. I don't know where to find patients. I don't know how to do it compliantly. I don't know what they should be compensated. So, you know, obviously that's why organizations like mine exist to help with that. But I think the mindset is there mostly, um, but people just have to know that this is something to include. And that's like, I'll share recently, we were working with a pharma company to help them come up with an actual roadmap company-wide that would be used and all their, you know, global organizations that would say, hey, here are the different places in drug development where you would get patient insights so that anybody starts out, they're presented with said roadmap and they know that it could look differently TA by TA, but it gives them an overall sort of framework for where they should be thinking about this because people just don't know. So I don't know. I don't know how to answer where are we, but that's kind of where I see the industry at currently. And, you know, change doesn't just happen in our field. Things don't just naturally change at an enterprise or system level, right? Little trickles of adoption happen, you know, because there are innovators out there doing something new and there are change agents that want to try something new. But to get a system-wide change, this is change management 101, right? And so some of those things Jane is hinting, uh, Jen was hinting at in terms of building systems and training and processes in an organization, they're the dirty hands-on part of innovation, right? It's not the sexy front end of trying something new. It's the grunt work of doing change management, bringing the rest of the organization along, educating people, creating the right incentive structures, both with rewards for people that do it the right way. And those rewards might just be as basic as you hit your existing milestones and increase your probability of getting your, you know, your bonus at the end of the year but also sticks, right? So carrots and sticks change behaviors. You know, I never want to see organizations just put checkbox exercises in, but when leaders indicate that patient input is expected, not a nice to have, and ask questions like we were seeing um, in my last company at the protocol review committee, 
what input did you receive from patients and how did it affect the design of your study? I think these are some of the elements of a change management investment that's needed for this to happen. And Alicia, I get the sense you were a part of that type of change management inside Medidata, but also have a view on where we are in the change curve across the industry right now. I gotta get myself off mute. <laughs> Hopefully you guys can hear me. Um, I, so I guess if I was gonna go back to Rob's question just briefly, and then I can address your the, the follow-up question, Craig. Um, it, like, where are we industry-wise? You know, I think if you pulled the industry and said, you know, how are we doing? I think you'd get like seven out of 10. Um, I, I honestly, I think I'd give the industry a, a two out of 10 because I, I, I just, I feel like, you've got like Jen said there's like pockets of movement but it's not coordinated so I think when when you, it's like I think I said this uh, on an earlier call today it's like throwing a box of ping pong balls up and like trying to chase them all down at one time it, 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 and that's like that's how we're approaching patient centricity or evolving the the patient-centric ethos of a company I think we've got it we just need a much more collaborative, coordinated approach to this that I just, I don't, I still don't think is there. And I, hopefully that answers Rob's question. Am I, am I still seeing this right? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Rob. Thanks, Alicia. I appreciate that. I, I think that's an astute observation and I would completely agree with you on the, on the odds. I, I give yeah. us basically a two. I mean, we, we talk a good seven or eight, yeah. but we are executing <laughs> at a two level. Yeah, and, and just and that, but I think the the industry, just the amount of talking and awareness that there there is, and you layer in organizations like Savvy and what we're doing at Metadata, I think we're setting up the potential for uh, tremendous growth and advancement in this. But it, it's got to be it's got to be coordinated. Like Craig said, like if if leadership is is saying that this has to be part of what you're working on then it makes it happen. And I think that that comes back to the whole concept of sort of upending the business models that we continually operated, are, are operating in that I think are woefully out of date and inadequate for where we are in, in society today. We're, we're still operating in a very, very um, inefficient business model in this industry that I, I can't quite wrap my head around why it's persisted as long as it has. I don't know if Craig, you got any insight on that. <laughs> I, I can share beliefs. They're not truths, but um, honestly, in my past, if, if the organization had done a lot of work in a disease area, they believed they understood the patient perspective pretty deeply. And so the place where you had an opportunity to go say, hey, maybe we should ask was usually in the places that were new or the indications that we didn't have a lot of depth of experience or credibility in. So that that's the past. But what I wanted to call on was the future too. And specifically to Rob's point, I'm actually excited by seeing both the EMA guidance on, sorry, policy paper on DCTs and the first round of FDA draft guidance on DHTs, both of which specifically say 
you need to know that what you're going to use fits with the patient population in which you want to use it. And I'm using the wrong terms, but their point is we expect you to have information about whether or not what you're going to test fits the patient population. So it's a little bit of another level to what Craig was talking about. His internal executive team was saying, I'm not going to let you go ahead unless you show me you had patient input. Now we're getting signals from regulators, although they're not actual regulations yet. So I'm hoping that'll help. I definitely think it'll help. And I, I also think, I, I think if we're looking future state, I think I'm very encouraged at um, the relatively uh, improving pace of guidance that is coming out of the FDA. And I say relatively improving, meaning it's, uh, you know, coming more than once every five years. So um, I, I think we're making advances in that regard. And I think if, if, if we can also keep pressure on the FDA to keep advancing some of this guidance, um, it's going to help the industry as well. And it's a signal to the industry that we've got to get going. There is a little bit of conversation in the chat right now talking a bit about compensation for patients providing input. I remember uh, when I was pulled into a meeting with the, the head of compliance in a large pharma company, chief compliance officer, who asked in a room with others, uh, he heard we were getting patient input and he asked, are we paying patients for that input? And I remember thinking to myself, oh, God, what's the right answer to give this guy? So I went with the truth that we were, and his answer was, oh, what a good thing, because we're paying every other key opinion leader for their input. He would have questioned the ethics of not paying people, but uh, paying patients. But I know this is still topical on a lot of people's minds. And how much do you pay for an individual to share input? Jen, what, what, what's your response to folks who raise this question or concern? Can I pay people? Should I be paying people? How much do I pay people? Ooh, I love this question. So like I said earlier, early days of savvy, we got this sort of pushback around, well, you can't pay patients. It's going to unduly influence them, blah, 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 blah. But then it was, well, what is the risk if we don't pay patients? Because people like myself that were already sort of working in the industry, had flexible schedules, could take time off. This was not my, you know, main source of income. It was that you would get more people like me who were coming from a position of privilege sharing their expertise. And then if we couldn't pay people who were taking time off from, you know, hourly wages, hourly wage jobs, they needed to get childcare, transportation, and they are the ones that we truly need to hear from. But if we can't compensate them for that, then the risk is actually greater if we don't compensate patients. Not to mention just what you said, of course, like ethically speaking, it's just the right thing to do. But I think that's where we've we've shifted towards more acceptance around doing this because yes, we're paying other people. I think in terms of what do we pay patients, this is what's interesting. Since we work with all the different pharma companies, I could rattle off to you right now what each company's sort of fair market value is because each of them is a little bit different and sometimes it takes years for them to reassess where it is. So some of them still have a really low rate. Some of them have 
you know, progressed higher. At Savvy, we use a rate of $110 an hour. If we don't, if we aren't beholden to what the pharma company's rate is, or if people ask us for a reference point. So that's sort of where we have a, a jumping off point. That's if it's something that's going to be used for internal purposes. If it's something that's going to be used for external purposes, for marketing campaigns, obviously the value that it brings to a company is very different. And so therefore we do different rates based on what that might look like. But, you know, that's kind of how we approach that topic. And can a patient who shares input and insight during the design stage still participate in that trial or are they somehow tainted that they should not be a participant in that study? That I think is a more of a question on a company by company basis. And of course, here we are talking about rare disease where of course the, the population to even draw from is small. So I think we, we see that people actually want to be able to share the trials with the people who have participated after the fact. So when we work with those companies, they say, hey, you know, the trial's ready to go. Can we recruit from the same pool? So, you know, I don't see any reason not to. Of course, there can be other sort of ethical um, considerations there, but I certainly wouldn't say blanketly that we couldn't do that. I got to agree there. I think we get investigator input yeah. during the design stage. We don't blacklist those investigators from participating. Alicia? I was just going to say, you know, like, if, if Nike brings in a world-class runner to try on some sneakers before they bring them to market, does that mean he can't buy the sneakers when, when Nike starts selling them? Like, what's the analogy in any other industry? Like, it just, I, I don't know. I just feel like there's, we've got to start looking at this very, very differently and, and yeah, that, start challenging some of these assumptions. That, that was a question I was going to ask Jen and Alicia. I agree with you completely. It's, it's, so my question is, is it a question of money, the, the cost of that, or is it a question of biasing the study? And which of those is kind of most important? Because it, it makes all sense to me in the world that, you know, if you're trying to find a, 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 a very small cohort of difficult people that, that, that are spending time and money to, compete, to, to complete a trial, that they, these people could not be compensated. It's almost, it's almost um, criminal. Is it just the money or is it the, the biasing of the study? I think it's just long-standing assumptions that need to be challenged. I think people, uh, people there, there's an entrenched belief that uh, it, it, there, there's going to be a level of a bias imputed on this, you know, having this patient participate in a trial if they help design it, which I... I, I I don't know, you know, is, it, is the fact that they worked on the trial design going to uh, impact how the body metabolizes the drug? I, I, I really don't know. I think it was the perception that somehow these people, I mean, they're not unblinded. They're just yeah. well-informed. Why yeah. shouldn't every patient enrolled in our trial be as informed as somebody sitting in a room reviewing the protocol and, and discussing <laughs> yeah. it in detail? If anything, exactly. this person is exactly. great for our study. Exactly. Well, well, look, we are approaching the top of the hour. I've got like two minutes left. So Jen, Alicia, I want to give you each one minute. Tell me in five years, when we're talking about patient input and clinical trials, what are we going to be talking about? We're not, hopefully, please don't say we could just hit re replay on today's episode. What What is it going to look in this field in five years? Jen, you want to paint us your, your picture? 
Sure. I mean, I think it, we want to be doing this as just second nature. It's it's always going to be included, no matter what the part of drug development that we're kind of focusing on. And it's more enterprise wide that it just goes to being that this is something that you might have more people that are sort of managing these parts of the process. So I'm hoping that in five years, we're just continuing to learn from the learnings of getting feedback from patients, not a how do we do it. So hopefully that's the direction we're moving in. Stales? Yep. I was going to say, if we're still talking about this in five years, I won't be able to join you on Clubhouse because I will have thrown my iPhone through the window and probably interrupted my connectivity uh, because I will be so frustrated if we haven't made any progress at that point. I think, I like Jen said, I think we're well positioned to finally get to the point where we're now looking at how do we be become even more efficient with what we do with the insights. And we've moved past are we paying people? Are we not paying people? Are you know, and and some of these old standing assumptions have been addressed, and and we can move. If you have not met Jen or Alicia before, now you have. So make sure you're following these fabulous voices on LinkedIn, Twitter, or anywhere you can, because they are great voices to follow. Alicia and Richie, uh, who is in our chat and has been uh, participating over there, also were leaders on the patient journey mapping within Decentralized Trials Research Alliance, DTRA. That link is pinned uh, right now. So if you're listening audio only, dtra.org for some of the resources they've worked up. My thanks to, of course, my colleague Jane and my friends Jane, Alicia, for stepping forward with this week's topic. Rob, thanks for jumping on the stage. Our friends in the audience and in the chat, thank you as well. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, have a fabulous weekend. Thanks, everybody.